you have your Bible with you tonight, and I hope you do, please turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 25 through 27 tonight. As a reflection on Christ's death on the cross before we partake of communion together later. And what's ahead of us in our passage tonight is a stunning exhibition of Christ's immeasurable selflessness and compassion towards His own. And how His selflessness and compassion should be reflected by those who stand with Him. We've already read in verses 1-24 through the context leading up to our passage tonight. How Jesus was mocked and mistreated by the soldiers. How He was rejected by the Jewish authorities. Unjustly condemned by the nation. Scorned as the king of the Jews by Pilate and nailed to the cross as a criminal by Roman executioners. And all of this happened, though they couldn't find a single charge to bring against him. Now from one perspective, we can look at this and say this is a great tragedy, travesty, a terrible thing. But we need to remember that we call this Good Friday for a reason. You see, everything that happens to Jesus throughout this Passion Week, was planned far in advance. Hanging on the cross for the sins of His people was not an event that took Jesus by surprise. John shows us that throughout His three and a half year earthly ministry leading up to this moment, that Jesus had lived under a constant expectation of this very moment coming. Jesus says repeatedly in John 2, verse 4, My hour is not yet come. In John 7, verse 6, My time is not yet come. In John 7, verse 8, My time is not yet fully come. And John, the apostle, the author of this gospel, repeats this in John 7, verse 30, His hour had not yet come. And in John 8, verse 20, His hour had not yet come. So see, as you study Christ, there is this expectancy of impending destiny that hangs over His life. One, one of one climactic moment that will define His entire earthly life and therefore all of history with it. There was an hour coming. Until finally in John 12.23, Jesus stands inside the walls of Jerusalem after His triumphal entry and He declares the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And though my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Jesus knew what the week had in store for Him. He knew that His hour had come. He was no victim to the anger of men. He was God over the affairs of men. And so even as Judas and his rabble gathered together by the power of darkness to arrest Jesus in the garden, we're told in John 17, verse 1, that Jesus lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. It was time. As Jesus said back in John 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And Jesus continued to demonstrate His divine control over every single detail of His crucifixion, even throughout His trial and execution. He was betrayed by 30 pieces of silver in fulfillment of Zechariah 11. 
He was abandoned by his friends in fulfillment of Psalms 41, verse 9. He was silent during his trial in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was flogged in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was disfigured in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 2. He was moved immediately from prison to death in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was taken outside Jerusalem in fulfillment of Exodus 29 and Leviticus 4 and 16. He carried his own cross in fulfillment of Genesis 22, verse 6. He hung on a cross of wood in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21, 23. He would die between two criminals in fulfillment of Psalms 22 and Isaiah 53, 12. And he was nailed through his hands and feet. His bones would be pulled out of joint. His heart would break. He would suffer great thirst. His garments would be divided among the mocking of others. And he would be forsaken by his God in fulfillment of Psalms 22. All of this was foretold. All of this was planned. All of this was providentially orchestrated by Jesus, God the Son, even as he hung there on the cross. Though bound in the flesh... As God, Jesus was forever unbound. And he was going to accomplish the redemption of his purpose just as he had promised. As the hymn writer wrote, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And just as had been foretold as Jesus hung there naked on the cross as a criminal, we find here in John's account that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people. He's surrounded first by the cruel. That's mentioned in verse 21 where we saw the chief priests of the Jews saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said he was king of the Jews. Think about that. These were the, these were the rulers of Israel. After Jesus powerfully taught the law of God, among them and performed many wondrous signs and miracles in the presence of them all. They who knew the Old Testament Scriptures refused to acknowledge who He was, but instead say in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar, repudiating every element of their doctrine of the Messiah in that moment. And then in the other Gospels, we're told that they leave Pilate and they start mocking Jesus on the cross as he hangs there. Look at him, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Chosen One. They mocked him as he, laid, as he hung there dying. So in the crowd around Jesus, we see the cruel. Also in the crowd around Jesus, we find the callous. That was in verses 23 through 24, right before our passage, where we read, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. In other words, these soldiers had done these things so many times that it was business as usual for them. They had no idea who Jesus was, nor did they even care. He was just the next man to die. So in the crowd around Jesus, we find the cruel. In the crowd around Jesus, we find the callous. But we also find in the crowd around Jesus, a small remnant among the crowd, the caring. And that is in verses 25 through 27, which is the passage before us tonight. In contrast to the four callous soldiers, we see four caring women, plus one other who's hiding in the shadows. And as we work through this account, 
This evening we're going to look at the caring companions of Christ in verse 25, followed by the caring call of Christ in verses 26 through 27. And I want you to know right off the bat that what we're going to discover tonight is this. Not only does the cross confess the heart of Christ towards us, but it also calls for us to care for others just like Christ did. We're going to see that one of the calls of the cross is to care. We're going to see that through the caring companions and the caring call of Christ. So with that in mind, let's read John 19, 25 through 27. The Apostle John writes these words, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God, whose commands we hope for, even as we do his salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is set before us tonight. We thank you for the glory of Christ that is revealed in this passage. We thank you for the call that Christ delivers. I pray, Father, that your spirit would teach us tonight your word so that we might might be more like your son, Jesus for His honor and for His glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 25, we're introduced first to the caring companions of Christ. That's in verse 25 where it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now these verses start off with that word but, which means that John is making a sharp contrast here. In contrast to everybody else we've seen earlier in the chapter. In contrast to the cruel leaders mocking Christ. In contrast to the callous soldiers ignoring Christ. Here we find a small remnant of caring individuals standing with Christ as He hangs on the cross. There are five individuals total, four that are mentioned in this verse, and one more that's mentioned in the next. The first is Jesus' mother, Mary. And I want you to think about her for a moment. Go back in your mind to the very beginning of the Gospel accounts. There Mary is a teenage, a young teenage mother, with her husband taking the newborn Jesus into the temple. And as they're entering the temple, to their great surprise and delight, a godly, aged man named Simeon sweeps the baby Jesus up into his arms and he begins to sing of the future saving benefits that Jesus is going to bring. And in so doing, Simeon blesses that young family. But then Simeon locks eyes directly with Mary. And says in Luke 2, 34-35, Behold, this very child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he said this, And a sword will pierce through your soul also. And now here is Mary. The baby that she loved. The boy that she held. The man that she loved is hanging shredded and emaciated before her. 
Mary's heart in this moment is impaled with grief and pain. Beside Mary, we're told, is her sister, Jesus' aunt. No name is given here in John's account of who this is, but according to church tradition, and also due to her later family involvement in the burial process, this is most likely Salome, the mother of James and John. And Salome's there, standing with a broken heart next to her sister, grieving with her in all the depths of familial love. We don't know anything about Mary, the wife of Clopas, but we do know a bit about Mary Magdalene. She's the woman who had seven demons cast out of her, according to Luke and Mark's Gospel. And she's also possibly the woman who broke the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus' feet and head with oil. The woman whom Jesus said she loves much because she's been forgiven much. These were four women who knew well the love of Jesus and who loved Him as well. And they're accompanied by one other individual, our author, the Apostle John, who identifies himself in verse 26 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This was John's favorite identifier as he uses it over five times in this Gospel. And John calls himself this not because because Jesus didn't love any of his other disciples, but simply because John couldn't get over the fact that Jesus loved him. It was his most treasured identity beyond even his name. It was the fact that he was loved by Jesus, the Son of God. This was his pride. This was his crown. This was his highest boast among men. Christ's love for him. And so I want you to imagine John's heart in this moment as he looks upon his Savior, how it was breaking. You see, despite Christ's love for John, In John's love for Christ, John had deserted Jesus earlier. Matthew 26, 56 says that at Jesus' arrest, all the disciples left him and fled. And even though John was given the unique opportunity, along with Peter, to be present at Jesus' trial, both of them hung back in the shadows because, as Matthew 26, 31 states, they were scandalized by Jesus. In other words, they were ashamed of him. After all the love all the care, all the years. John is ashamed of Jesus. But here we see John is back. He's back at the cross. He's the only apostle who returns to the Lord before the resurrection. What draws him back? The answer is the exact same thing that drew all the disciples back eventually. And that was the love of Jesus. And as John stands there looking up at Christ, he now knows why Jesus had come to die. Jesus had to die for people like John, like Peter who denied him three times, like you and me, sinners. Listen, there was no greater light a man could sin against than the light that John saw day in and day out for three and a half years He saw the unveiled glory of the Lord and he turned his back on all of it and was ashamed of Christ. There is no greater light a man could sin against and no greater condemnation that a man could face. And yet here we see that there was room at the cross for John. And John's message for the rest of his life when you study the rest of his writings is this. If there is love and forgiveness to be found for a man like me, then there is love and forgiveness to be found for you. 
Come to the cross and look on Christ in faith and be saved by the sacrificial love of Jesus. And so these are the five caring companions. The five caring companions that drew near that day. His mother Mary, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. All five standing beneath the one whom they loved, standing beneath the one who loved them. And who can imagine the pain of their five souls in that moment? Some of you here may be able to imagine better than some and others. Those of you who have been through or have suffered a loss like this, you can feel and you can connect with this. Their hearts were breaking, and yet where were they? Nonetheless, John tells us that they were standing by the cross of Jesus. I don't want you to overlook the significance of that phrase All of Jerusalem, in its utter rage, had just bypassed all of its rules and laws in order to condemn Jesus to death unjustly. There was no due process here. And now, as this boiling crowd surrounds Jesus, spewing actively hate and vitriol up at Christ, where do these five individuals take their stand? They take their stand opposite the crowd by the cross of Jesus. And in so doing, they're putting their very lives on the line in order to identify with Christ. This is a powerful illustration of what Jesus taught in Luke 9, 23-26 when He said this, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here we see these five individuals show that by the grace of God, they are not ashamed of Christ. They were willing to lose their life. They were denying themselves. They were ready to take up their cross. They were following Jesus. And so these five individuals that we see here, these caring companions, represent for us the experience of all true believers in this fallen world, vastly outnumbered, often afflicted with pain, and yet drawn by the love of the cross, standing with Jesus and not standing alone. And what does Jesus do in that moment as those five individuals take their stand with him? He does one of the most astounding things imaginable. He issues a caring call, and that's what we're going to see next. After the caring companions of Christ, we then see the caring call of Christ. That's in verses 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, home to his, took her to his own home. Now we just read that because we're familiar with this account, but I want you to think about that for a moment in light of what Jesus is undergoing in this moment. Our Lord is is in the midst of limitless pain. Hour after hour of having His tendons pulled to the breaking point. Agonizing and struggling upward just for breath scraping his already lacerated back against the rough wood and sending excruciating pain throughout his entire nervous system just to get oxygen in his lungs before he collapses under his own body weight again. 
And it's far worse than even the physical affliction that Jesus is going undergoing because Jesus knows that darkness is coming. He knows that as the Holy Son of God, He's going to have to become sin for His people. He's going to have to suffer separation from, the, from, from His Father. And He will have to receive in Himself the infinite wrath and judgment of the Almighty, full strength for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet in the midst of all that great burden and that great work upon which all history hinges, John tells us in that moment, Jesus' eyes fall upon his mother and the disciple whom he loved that was standing nearby. That's astonishing. The selflessness of Christ. (laughs) I was so rebuked this week. When I have a headache, I have a hard time thinking about someone else. Look at the heart of Christ. In the midst of it all, the greatest horror of horrors in all history, there is Jesus thinking about others, thinking about his own. Now, beloved, listen, even though he's exalted today, a God who would think about his own in his extremities is a God we can approach in His glory with the greatest of confidences. That's why John writes later in his epistle, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Where do you think John learned something like that? Right here, as he sees the eyes of Christ fixed upon His own, even in His agony, He stays focused in care upon those that He loves. Here we see the deep, deep love of Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus turns to his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and he says, end of verse 26, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. See, according to the word of God, it is the responsibility of children to, prepare, to provide for their parents in their old age. We see this in Mark 7, 10 through 13, 1 John chapter 5, and, or 1 Timothy chapter 5 and elsewhere. The time for obedience in a child's life may end, but the time for honoring your parents never goes away. And according to Scripture, to provide for your parents in their old age is one of the most fundamental ways a child is to honor their father and mother, as Exodus 20, verse 12 and Ephesians 6, 2 commands. Well, here we see that Jesus does that in making sure that his widowed mother is taken care of by John. He doesn't ask any of his four half-brothers, because at this point, according to John 7, verse 5, they did not yet believe. That would come after Jesus' resurrection. And so Jesus turns to the two of them, and he issues this call. Woman, which was a respectful term back then, behold your son. Really new son. It's no longer me, Jesus is saying. It's John. And then he says to John, Behold, your new mother. In in other words, Jesus is telling them, Take care of each other. John, you take care of Mary. Mary, let John take care of you. And I want you to get this point. I don't want you to miss it. Jesus is operating here on the cross as he issues this call, not only as a son who's providing for his mother, but he is operating as Savior and Lord, instructing his people. That's why Jesus refers to Mary here as woman. Now that is a respectful term, but it's also a distant term. 
Jesus is indicating that what he says here goes way beyond familial responsibilities. He is speaking not as son, but as savior. And as savior and Lord, Jesus turns to his caring companions and he issues this call to them. Take care of each other. I'm going away. And so act as I would. In my stead, love one another as I would love you. Indeed, this is the very call that Jesus had just given to John and the rest of the apostles just the night before in John 13, 34-35 when he said this, I am going away, therefore a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here and he's saying it as both Savior and Lord to two of his followers. I'm going away, so take care of each other and let yourself be cared for. And John and Mary got the message. The end of verse 27 says, And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And he cared for her, just like Jesus commanded. Church tradition says that John the Apostle took care of Mary for over the next 11 years until she died. He got the message. But you know what? John also got the message that Jesus is called to behold your son and to behold your mother. To care for one another was a call far broader than just to John and Mary. It was a call for all believers who stand with Christ at the foot of the cross. John understood that to come to the cross means you no longer live a life for yourself. To come to the cross means that you become blessed with a commission, just as John was. A calling to act as Christ's hands and feet, to be His body, And to act in His stead by loving and caring for one another, even as we are loved. As John will write later in his first epistle in 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. For this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. See, just, as, just like John, we receive at the cross of Christ a call. All of us have. A call to take Christ's place in this world. As Jesus acknowledged in his prayer, even the night before, in John 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world also. See, we have been called to take Christ's place in this world and to care for his own, even as he cares for them. Would you or I have taken care of of Mary if Jesus had asked us. You might think tonight, of course I would have. But how do you know? You see, you and I have the exact same opportunity given to John each and every day. See, in Matthew chapter 12, after a man tells Jesus that his mother and his brothers were out looking for him, Jesus replies this way in verse 48. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father 
in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So I want to encourage you, those of you who have come to Christ and trusted in Him and His work on the cross, who stand with Him, I want you to look around yourself right now. Really, look around yourself right now. Behold your mothers and your fathers. Behold your brothers and your sisters. Behold your sons and your daughters. Jesus establishes a connection here and he recognizes a connection here that goes way beyond physical relations. It's called the church. And spiritual responsibilities that those in Christ have towards each other. To occupy Christ's place in this world for his honor and glory and to be his body, his hands and his feet to those whom he loves. This is the family of Christ and we are his body. And even as he hangs dying on the cross, Christ issues this call to us. Love one another. Care for one another. Let yourself be cared for. That's what we as a church are all about and that's what we have all committed ourselves to doing. Those of us who are members here at Grace Chapel. That's what's at the heart of our church covenant that binds us together as a church. It is a commitment to care for one another. Just as Christ called us to do on the cross. And so as the men come forward for communion at this time, I want that to be the means by which we examine ourselves tonight as Christ's followers before we eat the bread and drink the cup, I want us to examine ourselves in light of our church covenant, in light of Christ's call, and ask ourselves this question. How am I doing? What aspect of care am I neglecting towards the family of Christ? And what aspect of care should I be growing in? If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you at this time when these elements are passed out, to just let the elements pass. Do not eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Don't pretend to have communion with Christ when you don't. Instead, I would encourage you tonight at this time to repent of your sins and to trust in the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ poured out for you. There is room at the cross for you. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. There is room at the cross for you. For the rest of us, as we recite our covenant together in anticipation of communion tonight, this is the call of Christ from the cross. Having done all that He had come to do, He entrusted the care of His soul to God, and He entrusted the care of His people to us. And tonight we hear that call to yield up all that we are and all that we have to Jesus and devote ourselves to the loving care of those who stand by Christ with us until He returns. Let us hear our Savior as He calls to us, take my place till I return. And so, and so let's recite together our church covenant in anticipation of communion tonight. There we go. So I'll read this. Uh, I'll read this first section that you can barely read. <laughs> Having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we do now, in the presence of God in this church, most solemnly and joyfully enter into this covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We seek God's grace and enablement 
in all things. To walk together in Christian love. To exercise Christian care and watchfulness over one another. To assemble regularly to encourage one another and to pray with and for one another, sharing our burdens, sorrows, and joys. To be thoughtful and courteous to one another. To be slow to take offense and to be quick to forgive and to seek forgiveness. To guard the purity, peace, and prosperity of the church through the guidance of the Scriptures and to support its testimony as a witness to the saving grace of God and Christ Jesus. To assist through the gifts of the Spirit in the work of the church and to support its testimony as a witness to the saving grace of God and Christ Jesus. To contribute as the Lord directs to the financial support of the church, the relief of the needy, and the evangelism of all people. To love and to pray for all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. To engage regularly in personal Bible reading and prayer. And to establish family devotions where possible. To uphold the chastity of the unmarried and the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. To uphold the sanctity of life from conception to death as the unique image bearers of God. To bring up such children as may be entrusted to our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To live with honesty and humility in the world. Demonstrating God's kindness to all. To be faithful in engagements exemplary in conduct and denying ungodliness and sinful desires. To endeavor by example, by work, by prayer, and by the proclamation of biblical teaching to the lost to witness to others in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To purpose that when we remove ourselves from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This is the call to care for one another in light of Christ.